Ah, the Old Testament reading. And teach these things to your children, teaching the law. How many um, times do we think that that's our job is just to teach? But teaching is not so much just the words, but also the life that we live and how we demonstrate that. And in the New Testament, we um, understand and see how the life that we live um, was set, the example was set for us by Christ. And we can understand that, and he leaves behind um, so much of the truth that we understand and seek. So um, as we come to the New Testament reading, uh, would you join me in prayer so we seek God's guidance? Pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for your word and your truth, and I pray, Lord, that as the words that I share from Scripture and the words that I share from study and experience would be guided by your word and truth. We pray that our hearts would be open to that. Any words that I share that do not uh, remain consistent with your word, they would be quickly forgotten, but those that are your truth would be etched on our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading from the New Testament is from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of, of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is the word of the Lord. I was at a conference with other pastors in California several years ago, and uh, Pastor Jack Hayford, a pastor of a large um, Foursquare Gospel Church, asked the question, he said, why did Jesus have a ministry? He said, why couldn't Jesus have just come to earth, lived a perfect life, paid the price for our sins, died, been resurrected, and gone back up into heaven, and the price would have been paid for our sins? And there are a lot of pastors and um, professional um, 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 ministers and others that are in this room, and we were kind of left scratching our heads. Why did Jesus have a ministry? And then it's one of those things, the answer is so obvious, we're thinking, duh. Um, But the answer was to build the church, to build the church. And when Jesus came to earth, he took upon the, um, the physical body to live life, to experience life, and to ultimately pay the price for our sins. And he's done the same thing now after the ascension, where he's left behind his body, the body of Christ, that is ministering to the world, sharing the good news, sharing the truth of God. But the body that is here is the church, and in history, this body of the church, not just First President Amarillo, but the church around the world, has done some phenomenal things, and has done some not-so-great things. But each part of our body of, of believers is necessary, and we really need each other to reach our full potential. And Christians who operate in um, independent, li- in independent communities or independent li- living, they're really reducing our effect- their effectiveness 
And sometimes we do the same things. Over time, the American church has been built by natural groupings, whether it be race, age, socioeconomics, political, style of worship, whatever it is. And even as we see this, we see other what people call silos or specific areas of ministry that don't so much mix even within people within their own walls of their own church. Sometimes we um, have our youth ministry, our children's ministry, our young adult ministry, our senior ministry, and as we get into those different ages, there's different distinctions altogether. But is that really the body of Christ? There have been many uh, studies and researchers who have looked at this and tried to understand the importance of same-age learning and groupings, but also recognizing our need for the whole body of Christ. When I was a kid growing up, our um, Thanksgiving dinners were always split between two, two um, families. One year we would have it at um, my parents' house where I grew up, and then the other year we would have it at um, a friend of ours, the Harriets. My um, mom and Mrs. Harriet were um, friends since childhood and both lived in Dallas, and so we would vary from um, house, we would alternate years um, on, the, on the time of Thanksgiving. And at the Harriets, whenever we would go there, they had one dining room table, that was where the adults went. And the adults got to eat, and there was wine and, you know, the same food. But then the kids' table was usually like a card table with um, no wine, which is good, um, and other, you know, things that were a little bit similar but not quite the same. And this idea of a family table and how that looks is a lot of ways of our church. My home, my mom was one of those people that The more leaves and the more people sitting on the piano bench or whatever chairs we had to pull in, we were all at the same table. And sometimes it was a mess having us all at the same table, but that was what we had to look forward to every other year. And as a kid, I don't know if I liked one better than the other. I thought they were both pretty cool. But um, people have helped to see through the um, Fuller Youth Institute um, this idea of what do the two tables look like within our church? And we have a video that we're going to watch that um, demonstrates this a little bit. Family gatherings often lead to wonderful times around the table. Memories are shared and formed over sparkling conversation and great food but only among adults. Unfortunately, when there are too many of us to fit around one table, our tendency is to separate out the kids. We tell ourselves that after all, they usually want to be on their own. This inevitably leads to two separate tables with two very different experiences. Sadly, that's a lot like the church. We tend to have adult classes and kid classes adult worship and kids worship. Over time, many churches separate kids and adults entirely. This starts when they are young and results in kids who graduate from youth group and don't know the church. At the Fuller Youth Institute, we've learned through our sticky faith research that while sometimes the kids table is appropriate, the most effective ministries find ways to integrate children and teenagers into the whole life of the church like sitting at one big shared table. So 
So if you've heard me talk much in the almost uh, nine months or so since I've been here, this is not new. Because the reality is that our youth ministries um, throughout, not just First Pres, but throughout the country, have done wonderful things. But the reality is that um, statistics show that children or students who are involved in children's ministry and youth ministry, about half of them don't continue to pursue Jesus Christ once they leave youth ministry. And this is an initiative that really started uh, probably about four or five years ago by Fuller Seminary, their Fuller Youth Institute, and it produced a book called Sticky Faith um, by Kara Powell and uh, Chap Clark. And it's not necessarily just a book, and it's not really a um, program. It's more of a movement and a way of rethinking how do we do church. One of the important things that uh, Kara Powell, the voice that you heard in that video, says is that there are times where separate is good. Separate is needed to teach fundamental things of our faith at age-appropriate levels in different ways. So we're always going to encourage to do that. But sometimes we've said that's enough. Sometimes we've said the kids being at the kids' table is enough. And we need to find ways to bring together the various generations that we have. And one of the great blessings of First Presbyterian is that we do have such a wonderful mix of ages. We have people, um, when you look at the statistics in the age demographics, we are full all across. Doesn't mean we don't have room for more, but we are grateful that we have so many different people of different ages to tap into. This is something that um, Howard in the um, session is really um, understands the importance of this intergenerational idea. And if you remember last week, I said that intergenerational is different than multi-generational. Multi-generational is when you're at, a, at an event or somewhere and there's people of different ages. But you can be in a movie theater and that's multi-generational. But intergenerational is when there's relationships between the various, um, various um, relationships. Excuse me. Intergenerational is when there's um, relationships between the various ages and, and groups that are within the church. And so that's what we're really working towards is what does it look like to have a multi-generational church? One of the quick and easy things that people will say is, oh, we need to institute mentoring. We need to have mentors between the younger and older people. And sometimes that works. It can work in a wonderful way. There's a story that we learned when we were in California, a group of us who were at a Sticky Faith conference, um, Heather uh, Mullen, Melody Alexander, Howard, and myself. And we heard this story of a church that um, there was a man in the church who had been an Olympic swimmer. Never medaled, never a popular man, but had swum literally thousands of miles in training to be in the Olympics. And he was in his late 50s, and his wife passed away. His kids were in another part of the country, and every morning at church, he would sit by himself. Word got out that there was another family that had three boys, and all of them loved to swim. And they found that this man in their church, sitting by himself, was an Olympic swimmer. And they invited him one day, hey, you want to come watch our kids at a swim meet? He began to watch him go to see him at the swim meet. Cheer him on. Tell him what his stories of being a swimmer. And you know who never sits alone again on a Sunday morning? A man who was an Olympic swimmer. Those relationships sometimes can happen in a very natural, very wonderful way. And I don't know if we have any Olympic swimmers among us this morning. And this congregation always surprises me of who is in our midst. But there's sometimes where that mentoring relationship is not always ideal. This week I read an article in Christianity Today by an author named Robin Jones Gunn who talks about mentoring. And I'm going to share her story because 
For some of us, it might be our story. Article starts, No, I can't mentor you. That was the blunt answer I gave to a wide-eyed young woman four years ago. She came up to me at church with a plan that included meeting at Starbucks every Monday morning. Now, just my own commentary, I don't want to undo what Orlando did a wonderful job of sharing two weeks ago when he talked about training a Timothy. Because I even heard of people saying that they'd been approached by young people to be mentors. And if that works for you, fantastic. This is in no way to undo what Orlando shared two weeks ago because it is true and sound. But for some of us, the idea of mentoring is not our cup of tea. And so I want to let you know that there are other ways. And this is part of her story. The author returns, I added, I'm sorry, but it didn't help. Her expression caved. She wanted, needed, longed for attention, lots of it. I've been been to mentoring workshops. I've taken on and taken in many young women over the years. I followed the steps and articles I've read on mentoring. And here's my conclusion. I'm a terrible mentor. After serving alongside my husband for 25 years in youth ministry, And then as a lay leader for the last decade, I've come to understand my strengths and weaknesses quite well. Spending hours listening to people's problems is not my gift. I'm kind of afraid of needy, self-absorbed women. I've been hurt by such women before. I've been drained to the last drop and then asked to give more. Surely I would disappoint this young woman because I won't be able to show up every week. I wouldn't have three hours to linger over coffee the way she would since she only works part-time and is living at home. It wasn't in my heart to fulfill her expectations of a mentor, mother, or counselor. Better to say no on the front end, I thought. Avoid the messy stuff. So why did my no bother me so much? My blunt no bristled up against my core belief that we're called to hospitality in all its various forms. As an older woman, I agree with Paul's admonition of... Titus 2, 3 to 5, that I am to teach what is good and to train the young women. But I didn't want to. As an older woman, I also feel like I am less, have less energy and fewer hours in the day. I asked a few of my friends what they thought. Each had a story of being burned in a mentoring relationship. But each of them also had a wonderful experience that made them smile and get teary-eyed. I live in Hawaii, and one of my best friends said, you have to view these these younger women as your extended ohana, which means family. Family members drive you crazy too, you know. Another friend softly said, these young women we spend time with are the future generation of believers. They are our kulia. Her use of the Hawaiian word, which means responsibility, went deep. Her spirit softened. I knew what she was saying. One of my friends would tell you it's her kunia to care for her infirmed mother at home. Another knows her kunia is to work for the local food bank. These women are energized by the responsibilities they've taken on. They see their opportunities as an honor and not a burden. So what is my responsibility? What is my responsibility with young women in our church? What resources do I have? What energizes me? What would make me feel like an honor and not a burden? I thought of something Oswald Chambers said in my, in my utmost for his highest. The need is not the call. The need is the opportunity. 
Days later, the opportunity was made clear once again. I was approached by another college-age woman asking, asking if she and her roommate could come meet me for a weekly mentoring time. My responsibility became clear. Instead of meeting with these young women one-on-one, I could change the, um, I could change the model. I would invite them to come with me for a weekly study. I had just finished writing the book with Trisha Goyer titled, Praying for Your Future Husband. I could receive their valuable input for future writing projects, and they would get the attention, affection, and a community they were longing for. This was exciting, not burdensome. An eager group of young women came together. They had no problem opening up and sharing their heartfelt insights and questions. I was able to respond to the group as well as to the individuals who lingered afterwards. I love knowing that as I was planting God's truth in the hearts of young women, that's why I write. That's why I speak. And that's what happened that summer with our group. The girls grew into a sweet community of caring friends. It was wonderful. And sometimes a little jagged around the edges, but it was real. As a result of that summer study, one of the young women ended up moving in with us for six months. Another got in the habit of coming by every Friday on her week away for, on, her, on her way home from work. She loved to jump in and unload the dishwasher, chatting merrily while I work on dinner. Life upon life. Another, Eliza, started helping me with my office work. The summer study knit us together even closer. Alyssa told me about a guy named Jeff. She also told me she wanted to write a Bible study for teenage girls one day. I was able to give her advice and encouragement while she blessed me with much-needed office support. By the time that summer was over, I realized I'd been mentoring without trying. That surprised me. My concept of the mentoring process shifted from how I tried in the past. Not once did I stop everything and go to coffee with a lonely, needy young woman. In fact, the women I spent every day with, with were delightful, bright and tender-hearted, and eager to know that they are seen by God and known by Him. I found it effortless to confirm His truths to their irresistible hearts while, while folding laundry and baking banana bread. We simply did life together, and it was energizing and beautiful. Two years later, Alyssa had moved to Seattle, and she was about to marry the guy she told me about, Jeffrey Bethke. I asked if she wanted to write a book with me, and over the next 18 months, we worked via email on a new study for young women titled Spoken For, Embracing Who You Are and Whose You Are. The book released last, um, last month, and once again, I'm gathering up a group for a summer study. If you were to ask me if... If I mentor young women, I would probably still say no. My crazy schedule doesn't allow me time to meet weekly for coffee. But then I'd stop and say that actually, I guess I am a mentor. It happens in the everyday flow of life around our home. I'm using the gifts available to me, storytelling, writing, gathering young women, and crafting storybooks that have the potential of reaching far beyond the shores of this little island. I give and I receive, and I'm not worn out. More than ever, I, have been cust- I, I believe that customized men- mentoring is a responsibility of every woman. It is an honor and a gift. Start today by watching for opportunities to be, to be who you were created by God to be and simply invite a younger woman 
to come alongside and enter into the flow of your life. This unforced rhythm of grace in life upon mentoring is elegant, messy, and oh, so worth it. I realize that mentoring is not always what we might peg it to be. You look at the Old Testament, and when they talk about walking daily, speaking to these truths, it wasn't going to a coffee shop and just listening to problems. It was living life. It was experiencing life. It was the power to come alongside someone. I remember when I was in Boy Scouts, and I was um, leading a patrol, and I was trying to get the people that were in my patrol to do whatever task it was, setting up camp, cooking dinner. I can't remember what it was. And I didn't realize, but off in the distance, my dad was watching me. And I guess I was a little bit of a, um, a yeller at that time of trying to get people to do things. And my dad walked over to me and he took a rope and he laid it down on, a, on a, the patrol box, on a piece of, of wood, basically. And he laid it down and he said, I want you to push the rope. And when I pushed the rope, it all came together. And now he said, try pulling the rope. And as you pull the rope, you see how it stays nice and straight. And he says, try pulling people along and not pushing them along. And I remember that on a regular daily basis almost as a father. I can see the times where I'm trying to get my my boys to do something and I'm pushing them to do it. Where's the difference of walking along and showing them, guiding them, pulling them along, and to see the different way that they receive what I'm able to give to them. Sometimes we think of mentoring as, all right, I get to push someone into being like me. I get to push someone, tell them how to do it the right way. And a lot of times that's when the mentoring relationship can cause problems. What's it look like when we walk alongside, when we come along and see how people are living, see their experience, share our experience, and how those are different and how they're alike. When I went on my first mission trip after my ninth grade year of high school, I went to the Dominican Republic, and a tall, dark-haired guy named Murray Gossett was my leader. And I remember we had to read a book called The Ugly American. And it was uh, talking about the ways that American imperialism could go in and take over a country and to put our ways upon them. And it's very clear to see in almost a way of, oh, I'm never going to do that. But I remember there was a phrase that either Murray or someone else on the trip shared with us when we go into a foreign country is when we see things that people are doing, it's not that what they're doing is wrong, it's just different. And how many times do we go into a mentoring or relationship with someone in the church and our first thing is to say, oh, they're doing it wrong. But maybe we need to understand why they're doing it, how we perceive it to be wrong, and understand what different looks like. Different doesn't mean that we, um, we, we um, weigh down or lighten up the gospel. doesn't mean that we take away the centrality of Jesus Christ, but our ways of approaching Jesus, our ways of studying, of worshiping, can be different. So how does this look at First Pres to have a sticky faith community, a place where everyone is in a relationship with people of different ages and different goals? We don't know. It's one of those things that sometimes you can go to a seminar and they'll give you, these are the three things to implement this program into your church. And the great thing about Sticky Faith is they've come and said, here's some ideas, and we want you to do what you can with various leaders and people in your church. It's not something that in six months or six years we're going to say, we're done. It's something that we hope really changes the fabric of First Presbyterian. 
One of the important um, measuring tools that we can look at to understand if we are a sticky community is a five-to-one ratio. A lot of times when doing youth ministry and you're going on a camp or a ski trip or a mission trip, you like to have about a five-to-one or six-to-one ratio. Five students for every one kid so that there's enough supervision in case anything goes a little crazy. But what um, Chap Clark and other professors at Fuller Seminary have says, we need to reverse that. We need to reverse that to a, a one child or one student to five adults. And that doesn't mean that on our mission trips that we're going to have so many more adults than, um, than children. It's does each child and youth in this church have at least five adults that they have a relationship with? Five adults in this church that maybe know their name, know their birthday, know what sports they're involved in, know what grade they're in, know what they enjoy doing. And it's not just a thing for older adults to, to seek out these kids. It's a reality of parents, like myself, to make sure that my sons have relationships with other adults within our church. It's happened in an organic way for my family, and I hope to see it grow more. Scott and Nancy Gilmore, Nancy was on the search committee that brought me, and um, whenever there's something going on at my son's schools, they always call and say, we want Scott and Nancy to be there. And they were there for uh, my son Hayden for his art project that they had a special display at um, Amarillo College. And Nancy was there like a grandparent, just interested in what's going on. Simple things of being there. Someone said that the goal of Sticky Faith is really putting fish and fishermen together. Putting together children and youth and adults and how can they form and make these relationships. And like I said, I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what that looks like for um, all the different um, students in our church, but there's people that believe it's an important thing, and we want to share and explore what this looks like. Next um, Wednesday, not this week, but the Wednesday after Memorial Day, we're going to have a lunch over at the A&O house for people that want to explore what does it look like to be a sticky church? What can you do? What can your role, your part be and being a part of a sticky faith community. It's open to anyone. Just uh, call the church. Talk to Elena, administrative assistant for student ministries. Let us know you're coming. It'll be at noon, like I said, on May 28th. And we want you to come and just hear some of the ideas that we're thinking about. Bring your ideas of things that you would want to do, things that, that, that might happen. I've told people that I always have the six-month bucket that's in my mind. And people come with me in the hall and they'll say, hey, I've got this idea for you. And it'll go in the six-month bucket, and usually within six months, I find a way to work it in or to incorporate it. And there's going to be a lot of things going into these bucket of ideas of how do we incorporate, how do we become more intergenerational in a wonderful church like First Presbyterian Church. It's a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful thing that we have before us that we're headed towards. But we need people. We need people to invest in this, to say, I'm willing to give time. I'm willing to build relationships. I'm willing to get to know other people within this church to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that activities in mission trips, camps, youth group, does not build lifelong discipleship. What statistics show more than anything is that students who build relationships with adults outside of their parents' friends are the ones who have faith that truly sticks. And we could have the greatest youth group, the greatest trips, but I believe it's a failure 
if we don't see those students continuing to walk with Jesus Christ on into their life. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you love us, and we thank you for this um, community of so many people that love you and know you, and the opportunities to truly be a sticky community of people that are building intentional, intergenerational relationships. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what we have, to see those uh, opportunities we have to invest in other people, to just walk alongside people, to share life together, share wisdom, uh, share um, just what, what you're doing in our lives with each other. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.